Well, are you ready for Christmas? No, I, that was uh, yeah a mixed response there, I heard. Some of you are ready, some of you are not quite ready. You know, uh, this is my favorite time of the year for a lot of different reasons. Uh, we are surrounded by nativity scenes like the one before us. Uh, we get to see Christmas cards. How many of you have sent Christmas cards already? I just wrote some out the other day. And on those Christmas cards, we see scenes of the nativity. Although the culture around us is saturated with the idea of gift-giving and Santa Claus, uh, we also have the opportunity through Christmas cards and nativity scenes, uh, living nativity scenes out where they're not outlawed yet, uh, out in the world. We have Christmas cantatas at churches. And one of the best ways to spread the gospel during this Christmas season is through the lyrics of some of these old faith hymns of the faith, these Christmas carols. You've already sung some of them this morning. You've already heard some of them. Uh, I had a dentist appointment a few days ago where the only enjoyable moment for me during that entire hour and a half procedure was sitting back in the chair listening to Christmas songs about the birth of Christ. Uh, we hear these lyrics. They're just packed with good theology. You might have your own favorite. It might be Silent Night. It might have been the little town of Bethlehem. My personal favorite is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. You might have seen me do that while we were singing it this morning. What an awesome picture of the gospel. Why did the baby Jesus come? Because God wanted to be reconciled to sinners. And that was the only way it could happen. And so we get to hear these wonderful lyrics and wonderful truth through the Christmas carols that we sing, that we hear all around us. And it is really the best time of the year, I think. Uh, one of the most opportune times of the year to share the gospel. It's true here in America. It's true overseas in different places around the world. People want to know, why do you celebrate Christmas? Why did the baby Jesus come? Well, the baby Jesus came because there was no peace on earth. And if you look around in our society today, here in America, internationally, even within the church, there is a huge lack of peace among a lot of people. In the hearts of man right now, I can say this personally, I've lived 43 years, some of you have lived a little bit longer than I have, but I can remember, uh, I can't remember, let's put it this way, a time in my 43 years when our nation as a whole was as stressed out as it is today. Some of you are nodding your heads and you, you understand that, you agree. Uh, we have so many different potentially stressful things going on in our country. We have problems with all of our Middle Eastern neighbors. Now we've got Libya to, to worry about. We've got uh, Iran to worry about. On the international scene, we've got all these problems. Hamas is sending rockets into Israel. We've got tensions that have just built up to a level that we haven't seen in such a long time. Here on our own front in America, political division exists that we haven't seen since 1860. A lot of people are upset about the outcome of elections recently. 
and people are just anxious about the future. You can't turn on any news channel without hearing about all the anxieties that people have, the worries about the future, the stresses that people are under. What's going to happen January 1st? I don't know. I know one thing, taxes are going to go up. It doesn't matter who gets control of the fiscal cliff or who answers the problem. They're going to go up, either by a lot or by even more. We don't know. People want to know what's going to happen to my health care. People want to know what is the future going to bring. And the future looks kind of gloomy. There is very little peace on earth to be found right now and very little joy in the world. And at a time like this, at this Christmas season, we have the best news that we could ever share with the world. And that is the birth of Christ and what his birth means to the world. God himself came down and solved mankind's greatest problem. As we look in our text this morning, we're going to see from the perspective of two elderly saints here in Luke chapter 2 who the baby Jesus really was. We're going to see through their eyes, I pray, as we look at this, uh, the identity of this baby what he means to the world and what he means to us individually. You know, first century Palestine, uh, there in Jerusalem, when Jesus came and was born of a virgin, was a difficult place to live for the Jewish people. They were under Roman occupation. Uh, They were not too happy about Roman occupation. Uh, They were being forced to sort of... uh, coexist with a culture that was ungodly, immoral. Uh, They were being taxed without representation. Uh, Things were not fair. And to make matters worse, the religion of the day, their own Jewish faith of the day, had been reduced to just a set of rules and regulations. Jesus even said to the Pharisees, you lay all these burdens on people's backs, but you won't lift a finger to help them to try and do all the right things. And so their religion offered no hope. But there were some who understood the Old Testament scriptures. They understood the promises in the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant. They understood that a virgin would conceive and that child would be God with us, Emmanuel. And many of them looked forward to this day and they waited for the consolation, it says in this passage of Simeon. They waited for the consolation, the comfort of Israel, what God was going to be sending very soon. Luke, as he writes his gospel, uh, his account of the life of Jesus, this biography, if you will, gets a lot of his information firsthand from, guess who, in this chapter? Mary. So Mary is feeding him this information, telling him what happened. So we have up until this point in Luke's gospel, Mary telling Luke, you know, it was amazing. The angel Gabriel told me I was going to bear a child and I wasn't even married yet. Oh my goodness, this was amazing news. And then we have this account that Mary tells Luke again of the angels announcing the birth of Christ there in Luke chapter 2. 
Whether or not they sang this announcement is not necessarily clear from the text. But let's just say for the sake of argument that they sang. Angels we have heard on high. They sang, Gloria, glory to God in the highest. In excelsis Deo. And they sang this greeting and it was miraculous. And the shepherds heard it and the shepherds went and they took the same message after they saw the evidence, the proof in the manger. They went and they told everyone about the birth of Christ there in Bethlehem. So they became really the first evangelists of the New Testament era. And we see Simeon and Anna here in this chapter. They're standing in a unique place in world history on a summit, if you will, between the Old and the New Testaments, looking back to the promises of God in the Old Testament and then looking forward. They were there and they saw the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And they became evangelists as well. And when we see the baby through their eyes in this passage, it's going to elicit from us, I pray this morning, a response of worship, a response of praise, and a response of obedience to go out and to tell other people about the baby. Mary and Joseph were good parents, good Jewish parents. We see in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, that they have taken their baby Jesus on the eighth day as was prescribed in the law of Moses to be circumcised. And at that time, following the Mosaic tradition in the law, they gave their son the name Jesus, the same name that the angel told them to give this baby. What does the name Jesus mean? If you look back in the old Hebrew, it's the name Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the covenant, the God of Israel, the the one true almighty God is himself salvation. Jesus, the name means God is salvation or God saves kind of gives us a hint at what's going to be taking place here. So here is God saves, God in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day. And when we come to this passage, in verse 22, the Bible says that the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, that Jesus, the baby, was brought by his parents into the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is for two reasons, two purposes he's brought just sort of as a background to what we're going to see in this account of Simeon and Anna. Two reasons why Jesus is brought. Number one, uh, Mary had to, by the law, give a sacrifice to show that she was now purified. It was 40 days since the birth, and she was now eligible to go back into the temple. She was considered clean to be a worshiper and to partake with everyone else. But there's something else going on here. There's another sacrifice. If you sort of read between the lines and do the the historical background and checking of the facts here, there's another sacrifice that's happening at this time. And it dates all the way back to the book of Exodus. You remember the book of Exodus? The people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And then God sends all these plagues, and the last plague is the worst plague of all, the death of the firstborn child. And at that time, the only way to save your firstborn was to take a perfect spotless lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood, apply the blood to the doorpost around the outside of your house there. And when the death angel, the destroying angel, came by, you know the story, 
that child inside was safe. Again, pointing ahead to the redemption and the, the identity of this baby. So for the parents, in order for them to keep their own child, this child, firstborn child was holy to the Lord. In other words, that child belonged to the Lord. In order for them as parents to keep this child, they would have to pay a sacrifice to redeem that child. And this is what's happening here in the temple. They have to pay a price, a sacrifice, and they're very poor. That's what the Bible gives us the the details. It's uh, two young pigeons and a turtle dove. And so the redeemer of all mankind, listen, first had to be, in a sense, redeemed himself. A lot of good uh, analogies here pointing ahead to what Jesus is going to be doing and what his identity is. And so Jesus is set apart for his ministry from birth here. And everything that Luke writes in his gospel points to the identity of this baby and this man, Jesus, that he grew up to be. So that's a little bit of the background. Let's jump into what is is happening here in this scene, looking at what Simeon said, or you could say he sang it possibly. Let's say that this is Simeon's song, and he sang this as well. The temple is busy, people are milling around, and Simeon had been promised by God that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, the one that God had promised from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So Simeon is waiting all of his days. He's older now. He's maybe in his 70s, possibly his 80s. He is described as a righteous and devout man. He's a godly man. He's got a great reputation among his peers. And he's following the Holy Spirit's guidance. He goes into the temple every day wondering, is this the day? Is this the day? And then one day, the Holy Spirit nudges Simeon and says, look over there. You see that young couple? Probably teenagers at this time. You see that young couple and the baby that they're they're carrying? That baby is the Messiah. Can you imagine the scene? Simeon walking over, hands perhaps trembling, as he says to this young couple, that's a beautiful baby. May I hold your baby? You know, it would be rude for them to say, no, you can't hold the baby. And so they say, sure. When a white-haired elderly gentleman comes and says, that's a beautiful baby, can I hold it? You say, sure, go ahead, hold the baby. And so they hand the baby over, and here's Simeon cradling God in the flesh in his arms. He looks down. He maybe strokes the hair of that small baby. I wonder if Jesus opened his eyes and looked at him. I don't know. He's 40 days old at this time. But Simeon saw something in this child being led by the Holy Spirit. He saw the fulfillment of God's promises. And he begins, he responds to this child with a song of praise. And as we look at this song of praise, we're going to look at several truths from it. Three truths from his song that I want you to write down, mark in your Bibles. And then one response of Anna shortly after that. Simeon has been waiting his whole life. And he looks at this child and he says, Now, Lord, sovereign Lord, 
verse 29. You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Now, in other words, God, I've seen him, I can die. Unless you have seen Jesus, let me just put it this way, unless you have come to him in faith, you're not ready to die. You might be ready to graduate. You might be ready to get married. You might be ready to retire, but you're not ready to die. Simeon said, I'm ready to die now. Why? Because I've seen it with my own eyes. God, you've been faithful to your promises to me, to your people Israel, and to all of mankind. God, you've been faithful. And I have seen, what does he say? Your salvation. Verse 30. Number one, the gospel is God's plan to save mankind. I want you to do something. If you mark your Bibles, get your pen out or pencil right now, and if this is your tradition, you like to write in the margins, find that word, your. In many translations of the Bible, that word, your, is capitalized, okay? I have seen your salvation. Circle that word, underline it, put a star next to it, do something to remind yourself that this is God's salvation. Simeon saw something as he faithfully searched the scriptures, as he was led by God, he realized and saw something in this child that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion in the world. Salvation is from God alone. Man, just like Adam and Eve, the first parents, have all in rebellion, walked away from God. The greatest sin that we commit is to be self-centered and independent of God. Our lives were created, we were created to orbit our lives around God and to glorify Him and to live every moment of our, be of our lives, every ounce of our strength, everything in us to His glory. But man has decided he would be better off to do things his own way. And that's the story of the Bible. Man has decided that, you know, I don't trust God. He's holding out on me. There's some life that's better for me, and I think I know better. And Romans 1 tells us the results of that. Man has been arrogant and ignorant of God's truth. What he knew about God, he has exchanged that truth for a lie and began worshiping and serving created things instead of the Creator. And this is what has caused all of the problems that we see in the world. This is why we're so stressed out. This is sin and the curse of sin infecting the entire human race. Man thinks he knows better than God. And man is weighed down by guilt and needs to be saved from that. You see, mankind goes around in his darkened understanding and creates all kinds of ways to deal with his guilt and his sin. Uh, one of those ways is to create a good moral religion. It looks good on the outside. If I just do these good things and rack up these points, 
then God will have to look at me and say, oh, he's done enough or she's done enough, and now I'll accept them. But this in itself is a form of idolatry. you realize that? Trying to manipulate God and trying to make God lower his standards to accept me on my terms instead of his? God is perfectly holy. He is far and above and beyond us. There is no possible way for mankind to pull himself up by his bootstraps. There's no way for us to work enough to earn God's grace. If you earn it, it's not grace. It's what you deserve. What we deserve is God's judgment. And so mankind walks around this earth in judgment, waiting for the day when he will stand before God. And this guilt weighs on us heavy. We try to find our own way out, but we can't. And listen, unless God himself steps in, we're completely hopeless. Simeon understood this. He understood the scriptures. And what he sings God's praises, the reason he sings God's praises is because he saw, oh, sovereign God, it's you and you alone who saves. This baby he's holding in his arms, his name is Jesus. God is salvation. Man cannot save himself. It's as if God walked into the world and the world was an orphanage filled with unloved, uncared for children living in the dark with no hope in themselves of ever coming out. And God burst through the door and light flooded into the orphanage. And God said, I'm here. I'm the only one who can take you to live with me forever. I'll heal your wounds. I'll heal your hearts. I'll give you a new life. And only I can do this. We're hopeless and helpless if God is not proactive and takes the initiative Aren't you glad that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God didn't stand there and go, well, you know what? Serves you right. Go ahead, reap what you sow. I'm just going to stand here and watch you burn, you know. If I was God, it's a good thing I'm not. Uh, I would probably vaporize every one of you. I'm just being honest. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve, well, you don't deserve anything good from God. None of us does. But God took the initiative and came after us. When Adam and Eve walked away, what did God do? He came chasing after them. And he said, where are you? And he asked us all the same question. Where are you? Christianity is the only faith, the biblical version of Christianity. This faith is different from every other religion in the world because it teaches that God himself took the initiative. It's God's plan to save mankind. Every other man-made religion in the world is man's plan, and none of them work. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is just point number one. We're going to have to really speed up. Y'all need to listen faster or something. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. This is actually where this sermon began a few weeks ago as I was reading this passage. 
Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. When the fullness of time came, in other words, at just the right time, and he's talking about the birth of Christ right here. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. If God doesn't act, we have no hope. And that's what God did. Philippians 2, you know that passage perhaps. He humbled himself, became a man, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. God took the initiative. I want to read to you a quote I came across in a book this past week. It's called King's Cross. It's by an author uh, I'm becoming more and more a fan of recently. His name is Timothy Keller. This is an outline of the Gospel of Mark. And Timothy Keller says in this book, this quote was so good. If you want to find it, maybe I'll post it on Facebook. You can take it down and read it. This is worth memorizing. This is one of those quotes that's just sort of life-changing and challenging. In speaking of the word gospel, you know, the Greek word that we translate gospel is the same word from which we get our words evangelist from, someone who is a herald of good news. The gospel is good news. It's what separates the gospel, the real gospel from the scriptures, apart from every other religion in the world. Listen to this quote. The gospel, he says, in the understanding of these first century people, this word, was news of some event that changed things in a meaningful way. It could be an ascension to the throne or it could be a victory. When Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battles of Marathon and Solnus, they sent heralds or evangelists who proclaimed the good news to the cities. Quote, listen to this. We have fought for you. We have won. And now you're no longer slaves. You are free. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. That's good. Let me read that again. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. Some might say, well, I never asked God to send Jesus. I never asked God to save me. Exactly. You didn't have to. It's God's offer of salvation. He saw the need. He came chasing after us. He took the initiative. You know, many times in sharing overseas, I, I, I would, for about a year, year and a half, I would begin with this phrase. I'd find something to make a bridge in a conversation to talk about the gospel. And I'd say, you know, can I practice my language with you? Can I share a little bit with you about what I believe? And in about two or three minutes, I got it down really good. I could share pretty much a chronological story from the creation to the cross. And I'd get to the end and I would say, what do you think? Just to kind of elicit a response. What do you think about this? What's your opinion? And you know, almost all the time, the same answer came back. Well, that's nice. But I think all religions just teach the same thing. Do good works. 
I would get so frustrated. It would drive me crazy. I, these people, they always respond and say, don't they hear what I'm saying? Don't they understand? So the Lord one day just grabbed my attention. He said, you know what? You need to change your approach. So from that time on, I started sharing like this. You know, I think all religions teach the same thing, basically. Just do good works. And they go, yeah. And I would say, got them. And I'd just kind of reel them in a little bit and say, can I tell you about something that's completely different from a man-made religion? It's not man-made. It's God's plan to save mankind. Jesus is God's plan to save mankind. Let's move along. What else did Simeon see? Are you worshiping God by hearing that this morning? Praise God. Because if he hadn't taken that initiative, we'd be without any hope. Simeon saw something else. He saw the sovereignty of God there and his love for us. But he saw the depths of God's love. Look at what else he says in the rest of his song. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, 31, verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There is only, number two, there is only one gospel, and it's for all people. One gospel for all people. It's at the same time, this plan of salvation that God has, that he is offering to all of mankind, is exclusive and inclusive. What do I mean by that? It's exclusive in the fact that it is the only plan. There is no other way. It's inclusive in the sense that it is for every person, every ethno-linguistic people group in the world, of which there are 16,000 plus different ethno-linguistic people groups in the world. That same word that Simeon uses in this passage for peoples is the same word, ethnos, that Jesus uses in the Great Commissions when he says, go and make disciples of all ethnicities, all nations. It's not just a geopolitical border of a country. It's every people group. You've been familiar with this. You've heard this in the past probably. But this shows us the depth of God's love. Simeon, when he looked at this child, he saw, is not just for me. It's not just for my people, Israel. This is a lesson that Jonah had to learn the hard way, remember? The Ninevites, God, are you crazy? I'm not going to the Ninevites. They cut out people's tongues and they torture. I'm not going there. We hate the Ninevites. Don't you know, God, we're your people. We hate them. Don't send me there. But this salvation is for everyone. Every one of us is created in the image of God. And God is jealous for His image. And so He has a plan to save people from every ethno-linguistic people group in the world. And this shows us the depth of God's love. You know, I stood one time in uh, 2003, I believe it was, on the top of a hill in a village uh, with a friend of mine. He was uh, meow, meow people. It wasn't a cat, okay? He was meow people, an ethnic minority people group. And uh, he spoke a dialect of the meow language. There are 84 different dialects of the meow language. I didn't speak any of them. 
Okay, 84 different dialects. He uh, pointed across this little stream to a little village on the other side of the mountain. He said, those people there, they're Meow people too. They speak a different language than us. I said, I could throw a rock and hit that house from here. He said, yeah. And I thought, man, you know, when God did that whole confusion of the languages thing at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, he did a really good job. And I thought, you're kidding me. A different language. You know, an ethno-linguistic people group, as the International Mission Board defines it, as uh, many people in this type of work define it, is a group of people through which the gospel can spread rapidly without encountering some type of cultural or language barrier. There are 16,000 plus different distinct ethno-linguistic people groups, ethnos, peoples, nations, on this planet as we speak. 7,000 of them have less than 2% evangelical believers. 7,000 different people groups. Many of those do not have any believers at all. 3,500 different people groups of 10,000 people or less have little or no gospel witness at all. Many of them are unengaged and they remain unreached because... No one has engaged them with the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let me let you in on a little bit of a secret this morning. My job as one of your representatives is not, my goal is not that everyone become a Christian or that everyone come to believe the gospel. Now, some of you are, you've turned your heads a little bit and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I thought that's why we're giving money to Lottie Moon. Our goal is not that everyone believe. We have no control over that. Our job is that everyone have the opportunity to hear and respond. All of these different ethno-linguistic people groups around the world, many of them with no chance to even hear or respond to the Bible. When Simeon looked down at this baby, he saw God's gift of salvation for all peoples. Red and yellow, black and white. Let's sing that song together. Would you do that for me? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Are they precious in your sight? They're precious in God's sight. In Revelation, we have this picture of all the different nations and tribes and languages standing before the throne and worshiping the Lamb of God. Psalm 86. Let me just read this passage to you. Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10, I believe it is, says this. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations, all ethnos, all peoples, whom you have made in your image, I might add, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. This gospel, the one, the only gospel, is for all people. You knew this was going to have missions emphasis, didn't you? Okay. Moving right along, point number three. 
Truth number three, how we respond to the cross determines our destiny. In verse 34, we have a shift in the whole tone of what Simeon is saying. He's already sang his Christmas carol, and now he turns his attention to Mary. And he gives a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. We know he gives this to Mary specifically because by the time Jesus goes to the cross, Joseph is no longer around. And Mary is going to see this with her own eyes. And she's going to witness the execution of her own son, her firstborn son. And he turns his attention to Mary. You say, Simeon, I've heard you singing about my child. And Simeon, you've told me that this child is God's plan to save all of mankind, every different people in the world. But Simeon, how is that going to happen? How can we be saved? And Simeon says, first, a price must be paid. Salvation is free, but it costs God everything. You say, where in the world is the cross in this passage, verses 34 and 35, and what Simeon has to say next? It's there. If you look closely, you'll see it. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary with his mother, he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, at this time of the year, it's fun to talk about the baby Jesus and it's politically correct to keep the baby Jesus in the manger, right? But once you start talking about the man, Jesus, what he preached, what he did, it's not so politically correct anymore, right? The baby's not as threatening. He's just a little baby. But when he grows up to be a man, he becomes, listen, the most polarizing figure in all of human history. And Simeon looked forward and prophesied this. Rising and falling. What does he mean by that? Many there in Jerusalem opposed Jesus to his face. In fact, they rejected him to the point that they eventually trumped up some false charges against him, handed him over to the authorities that they hated, and let them crucify him. They executed him. They stood opposed to him. And their hearts were revealed for what they were. And the same thing happens today. When we oppose Jesus, when we reject his offer of salvation, we are showing the desperate, depraved condition of our hearts. Many will stand opposed to Jesus. Some will stand with Jesus. All will stand before Jesus. By right of his death and his resurrection, God entrusted him with the judgment of all mankind. In other words, the cross is a crossroads. It is the place where each one of us must eventually come. It is an intersection. Life begins here at this intersection when we submit and surrender our lives to him. 
Can you imagine the scene at the cross? Mary looking at her own son. Blood flowing down. Sorrow and love flowing, mingled down the cross. You know, Mary herself had to come to a point of decision to either accept this as the substitute and the sacrifice to pay for her sins or to reject this offer. Isaiah 8.14 tells us in speaking of a future, another future prophecy of Christ that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We all must come to the cross and we must all make a decision at the cross. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus, the suffering servant of the, that the prophet speaks of, was on him the iniquity of us all was laid. He was punished for our sins. What is the cross? The cross is the place where God himself, in the form of his son, Jesus, took the punishment that was due to me and to you. He was the substitute. He is the sacrificial lamb that was foretold all the way through the scriptures. In fact, if you read the entire Bible cover to cover, it's foretold, it happens, and then one day he's coming back and he's going to judge everyone. There's only one criteria that we'll be judged by, and that is what we did with Jesus. Now, to reject a free gift of salvation, a rescue, shows the condition of the human heart. Can you imagine you're dying, you're drowning, your, your life is, is ebbing away, and someone comes along and says to you, I can save your life, and you say, no thank you. I'd rather do this on my own. I'd rather bleed to death. And so the depraved condition of the human heart is revealed as he says, those who reject will not stand in the judgment. We will fall. But those who submit their lives will stand. They will rise. Have you been to the cross this morning? Have you laid down your guilt and exchanged your old life for a new life? We've seen the sovereignty of God in this song. We've seen the depth of the love of God and that this salvation is for all people. We've seen the justice of God at the cross. The cross is where the justice of God met the mercy of God and they were both satisfied. But what should be our response? as believers, as we look at this baby, as we look forward to who he became, the man, what he did at the cross, what should our response be? There's someone else in the story that we haven't heard from yet. Her name is Anna, an 84 or perhaps older widow. She's staying in the temple, again, very similar to the description of Simeon, worshiping and fasting, led by the Spirit of God. And Simeon, as he sings his song, I imagine Anna, who has been waiting, just like Simeon has, for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for salvation to appear, overhears what's happening. There is a little mob, perhaps, that's gathered around this young couple. 
and she overhears, and she too rejoices. Look at what happens in verse 36. A prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she has advanced in years, lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, it says, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Again, a response of praise. And continued, listen, to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna's response was to take the message and share it with everyone who was waiting, who was looking for this salvation. She was surrounded by people who were waiting for some kind of good news, some kind of message to say, hey, look, God has fought for you. You are free. You're no longer a slave. Here's a message of something that's happened in history that's going to change your status forever. Here is good news. Here is a message of hope. Here is peace on earth. Here is joy to the world. She immediately went and she started sharing. She knew, as Isaiah said, that people are living in darkness, in a land of the shadow of death, under the judgment of God, looking for a way to fix their problem, not knowing that the way has already been provided. And she went and she shone her light to those people. One of the greatest privileges I had uh, serving overseas was to work or is to work with volunteers that come out from America. And one of the best times I ever had was with a volunteer woman from Florida. She was 76 years old and we couldn't keep up with her. I tell you what, she was out there. She was sharing with everyone. You couldn't slow her down. And I thought, man, what an awesome example of faith and obedience to go. Not being afraid of anything, but to go and to share and to open her mouth. We've seen the salvation of God, His plan to save mankind from their sins. We've seen the love and the depth of the love of God. We've seen the justice here at the cross. Our response as we look at this baby is one of obedience. There is only one response. To praise Him and then to tell others about Him. Romans 10 is a passage that the Lord used when I was 15 years old to call me into full-time ministry. Romans chapter 10, I want you to turn there with me for one moment, and we're going to close on this. In Romans chapter 10, I remember very clearly sitting there in the church where I grew up. A pastor was, uh, a guest evangelist was preaching, and I had sensed that this night was going to be something special, and I was really tuned in that evening to listen to what God had to say to me. And he used this passage. We'll back up to verse 9, because verse 9 is a verse that many of you are familiar with. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
For there is no distinction, listen, between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 14, this is where it hit me. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Good news. An announcement. Something has been done in history that changes your status forever. You know, Paul, as he writes this, is using a literary device called rhetoric. You're familiar with rhetoric? He asks, he asks a question that the listener or the reader already knows the answer to. And so when he says, how then will they call on him and whom they have not believed, the answer is, well, they can't. We already know that. You're asking how, Paul, the answer is, there's no way. It's not going to happen. Paul might as well have written, they cannot hear, they cannot believe unless they hear. How will they believe in him that they have not heard? They can't. How will they hear without a preacher? Well, Paul, they can't. It's not possible. He might as well have said, they can't hear without a preacher. And the next one, he might as well have said, they can't go and preach unless they're sent. Why do we go? Not so that everyone will believe. It's so that everyone will have a chance to hear the good news. The best Christmas card I ever received a few years ago had a picture of a nativity scene very similar to this. And on the inside it said, very simple, He came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. You know, in the years that I have lived overseas, the the thousands of people I've shared the gospel with, when I ask them the simple question, why did Jesus come? I have yet to meet a person who could tell me why. They don't know. They don't know. And there are thousands of others waiting. There are millions of others waiting. So the fourth truth here is simple. Millions are still waiting. We must Tell them. We must tell them. We must go. We must send. We must support with our finances. We must tell them. They're still waiting for salvation. 